there's a midrash that explains that when Abraham came to believe in God, he actually looked out at the world and gazed, kind of his own version of a forest bath, and he was just immersed. He was a shepherd, and he was living with the land, and that sense of awe is what brought him to believe in God. Welcome to PrismaCast, the podcast of Prisma Center for Jewish Day Schools. My name is Rachel Dratch, Associate Director of Educational Innovation here at Prisma, and this podcast is part of an amazing series called Startup Day School, envisioned and produced by Mr. Josh Gold, who is not only the middle school principal at the Hafter School in Lawrence, New York, but is also pursuing a doctorate at Yeshiva University. Without further ado, here's Josh with Startup Day School. Okay, welcome back to uh, the Startup Day School. My name is Joshua Gold. So good to have everybody back with us. Uh, and thank you everyone who's been joining us on our uh, most recent episodes. Um, we are having a great time and I'm going to continue having a great time in this episode. I'm so, uh, so happy uh, and blessed to welcome uh, two guests today. This is actually my first podcast with two guests. I have Yosef Gillers and I have Sarah Just Michael. They are the co-directors of Grow Torah, and we are not only going to learn uh, more about what Grow Torah is and all the great things that they uh, are doing and hope to continue to do in the future, um, but we're also going to talk about uh, some of the implications of their work uh, by way of gardening and getting dirty uh, in schools and things like that. It's going to be awesome. So let me uh, welcome once again Yosef and Sarah. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Absolutely. Thanks for having us. I started Grow Torah in 2017 with the mission to cultivate a passionate and compassionate, sustainable future driven by Torah values. And I had been working in day schools and in Jewish summer camps doing a whole host of different things, gardens and summer camps, not gardens and day schools, and thought, you know what? Schools could really use more experiential Torah and more environmental Torah. And what better way to do it than through school gardens? And then in 2018, I got this email from somebody named Sarah Just Michael. Hey, that's me. Um, yeah, I was working at a tech startup and I was feeling like I wanted to get involved with environmental work and I figured where better to do that than with my own community. So I found Grotora randomly online through just some searching around. And even though there was no job listings, I sent an email. So if anyone's considering a job, just ask. <laughs> it's worth a try. Um, and I started part-time and now Last month, we've shifted to Yosef and I being co-directors. So we, I've grown with the organization and really proud that when I started, I think you were at five schools and now we're at 14. That's incredible. Yeah. Pretty remarkable uh, yeah. to think about that in just a couple of years, how we've grown. So you've grown and I, there's obviously a demand for this. So the question is, all right, love the idea. We want to get kids in the garden. What does it look like practically when you come into a school? What do you do? Great question. So we, we have two versions of our program. One of them we're about to launch, but up until now, we've been doing our Shorashim program and we'll be launching our Anafim program. For Shorashim, it looks like a school science with us and then we come in, choose a site. Site choosing is a whole process uh, based on you know sun, access to water, uh, where the kids can enter through, all of those sort of things. And then we build the garden and uh, Yosef and I are actually 
the educators also. So we teach for four hours a week at each of our school partners. Um, and each of our lessons involve our four core values, which is always really exciting. We have something for each um, Parsha, but our four core values are incubating Emuna, uh, caring for the earth, compassion for creatures, and tzedakah. So all of those are at some point woven, in, at least one of those are woven into each of our lessons in the garden. And it's a really um, hands-on way to get to learn those lessons. Love it. And I love the hands-on piece because, you know, we, we know, especially at younger ages, but it's true, I think, at any age, that being able to have both concrete and abstract learning synthesized together is the ideal, right? That if we're only learning math by, you know, by numbers, right? We're introducing math to a, a young student, a kindergartner, first, second, third grader. We're, we're introducing concepts. If we just say, okay, second grader, what's two plus two? it's never going to be as effective as it would be if we start off with the manipulatives, right? That if we see one plus one, here's what it is in a concrete way. And then we move from the concrete to the abstract. If we don't go in that order, right? And we sort of skip that step, child is not going to have the same relationship with the concept that they would if they didn't. And so I have to assume that the same goes for this kind of work too, that if we're just learning about where our, our food comes from, okay, I maybe understand the idea, but if I'm actually getting my hands dirty doing it, I have to imagine it's a very different experience. Totally. It's actually, um, sometimes we get the question, why, why do you use gardens as a tool for experiential Torah? Why do you use gardens as a tool for environmental Torah? Um, and so it's actually ex for exactly that reason. We want to build a positive relationship with nature through Torah for each of our students. We want each of them to create that relationship. And once they have that relationship, they build a positive association. They appreciate. We always start with appreciation. And that's why our first core value is incubating Amuna. So we start with appreciation. And then we build that up and we mature and evolve that relationship with nature. Then we get to environmental commitment. But we can't, you know, it's hard to kind of come in and just say like, okay, we all have to care about the environment. So that's why we start with the more kind of organic natural process of appreciation and then evolving that into commitment. Are you, so actually, how long, remind me again, how long have you been doing this for at this point? So I started it actually in 2016, the first gardens at SAR Academy in Riverdale and Ben Parat Yosef in Paramus, New Jersey mm -hmm. was in March of 2016. Um, and it was a pilot, it was just independent, and then we incorporated it as a nonprofit in October of 2017. And what kind of results are you seeing by way of students relating to the environment, appreciating the environment, those types of things? What are you seeing now, uh, you know, a few years in? So it's really cool. In the beginning, we would offer kind of uh, to the schools, how can we help you, you know, make your school more green and increase the environmental commitment of the school? And now, you know, more and more, we're hearing it from the students and the schools are saying, okay, we have this many students now asking us to do X, Y, and Z, to start a compost, to improve our recycling programming, to teach more, to, you know, stop idling in the carpool line from traffic, to reduce our water waste. And so really hearing it a lot more from the students. It's interesting. So you're saying that not only are the students maybe appreciating, um, you know, nature and the environment more, but it sounds to me like they're also gaining an appreciation of their role sort of in the ecosystem, right? That it's not just that like, wow, this is really cool. This is really an incredible thing that the earth, right? Um, but also 
I as a, I as a person, as a as a developing person, I start to appreciate that I'm not, you know I'm not just simply a consumer of these things. I am also you know responsible for making choices that have an effect on the environment. Absolutely, and one area that we see that in really um, in a very concrete way is, is our, our fourth core value of Sadaka, in that you know we're teaching children about charity and giving, but they don't really have that concept of working for your money and making money. But right. when they feel ownership over the garden and they feel like they've put work into growing the food that's growing there, and then they do get to taste things in the garden, but then we also take things to uh, give to others who need it more. That value of learning of Sadaka can start from an earlier age than, than when you get your first job. 100%. And we're actually, um, what's really fun is we, we do what we like to call reverse ma'aser. So ma'aser is the concept of giving 10% of what, of what you grow uh, for farmers. And so we actually, it's borrowed from another Jewish farm out in California, Urban Adama, and it's reversed. So we donate 90% of what we grow. And in the gardens, we taste about 10%. Very cool. Now, let me ask you, are there, do you find that schools leverage this kind of uh, activity or this kind of initiative to have other implications as well? So, for example, like, I imagine that when we're learning about supply chains, when we're learning about, um, you know, globalization, things like this, that students have the ability to maybe relate to these concepts on a more personal and experiential level than they would have had they not had these experiences. Yeah, one of the really fun things is... Um at SAR Academy in Riverdale. So they have a, a colonial fair every year. And they used to learn about farming kind of as an abstract thing in different colonial, you know, colonial times, what, what folks would do, both the indigenous people and, and, the, and the colonials. And, um, and a couple of years ago, they said, you know, um, can you teach us a little bit more about what that's like kind of related to the garden? And so we started to integrate that into their classroom work of colonial. Um, and then Sarah started doing something similar for Indigenous Peoples Day at Yavna Academy. Very cool. Um, so let me. So let's let's uh, switch gears just a, a little bit. So beyond this, I, I this is something that I've wanted to ask you guys since we uh, initially had the conversation around this. There is a, a concept that I've often um, come back to. Uh, it, there's a concept in Japan. There's a Japanese philosophical concept called. Shinrin Yoku. Do you guys know what I'm talking about at all? It's translated in English as forest bathing. Have you ever heard this term before, forest bathing? Yes. So if you Google it, okay, you're going to see uh, articles about it in Time Magazine, National Geographic, uh, all kinds of major publications. It's, it's increasingly becoming uh, sort of a like uh, prominent uh, kind of emerging um, philosophy that I think a lot of people are, are taking advantage of. And particularly in the time of COVID, when people have been home and going on more hikes and things like that, forest bathing is this uh, very old belief that it is good for your soul and really good for you know all kinds of emotional benefits to immerse yourself in nature. And I'm wondering if you've had any feedback from schools or students around, you know what, just being in the garden, just being sort of like immersed in this world has been good for my emotional well-being and my social emotional development. 100%. What's, what's so <laughs> remarkable about that is, you know, we always try to tie it back to the Torah. So um, love kind of the comparative religion aspect of like Japanese culture, there's Shinrin Yoku. And what we love to get to do is share, you know, um, like our ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, our, 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 our foremothers, that's what they did. 
when mm-hmm. Avraham, there's a Midrash that explains that when Avraham came to believe in God, he actually looked out at the world and gazed, kind of his own version of a forest bath. And he was just immersed. He was a shepherd. And he was living with the land. And that sense of awe is what brought him to believe in God. So we are totally trying our own version of that with the students and the schools really appreciate that for sure. Um, and and it's, it's, always, it's always fun to get to, to, to kind of take a moment in, in the gardens with the students and just have them like pause for appreciation and just mm-hmm. totally try to take it in and breathe. You get a bunch of, a bunch of uh, seven-year-olds to, to, to kind of take a few deep breaths before they make a bracha and eat from a vegetable that they grew themselves there's a powerful moment there that we love, love, love to share. Right. Absolutely. And I've, I've had teachers come up to me and say, I, I can't believe how this student behaves in the garden and pays attention and focuses because I've never seen him do that in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, this concept of changing your mindset that a classroom has to be a four-walled room is shifting in today's world. Um, we have a no-wall classroom. We have a, a fenced-in classroom. <laughs> And it's, we've really, we've really seen um, students thrive in that space. Yeah. And to your point, Yosef, I mean, so much of not only our uh, religious philosophy, but so much of our religious practice is centered around agriculture and not being able to connect to that on a, on a, on an experiential level, I feel like is such a gap for so many kids. So what, what Sarah and I are working on right now is actually, um, we have lesson concepts and, and kind of like a document for almost every single Parsha and almost every holiday. And what we're working on just this week and next week actually is really concretizing that, editing those things down so that every single Jewish holiday, um, there's a Grow Torah lesson that helps the students totally connect with the agricultural themes, both on an Israeli agricultural cycle and also compared to their, you know, right now it's tri-state area, North, North Jersey, New York City, but understanding the difference between our different agricultural cycles and, and just connecting to the, to the overarching themes. Right. So if I'm a school who um, has a tremendous amount of land, obviously, you know, I, that's going to give me a lot of latitude about how I can, you know, work with you. But what if I'm an urban school and I really don't have a lot of land? How could I work with, uh, with Grow Torah if that's a limitation of mine? We've gotten very creative in the past with some of the schools that we're at. Um, we're at some two schools in Brooklyn. One of the gardens there is in an alleyway between the side of the building and a house that's right next door, which is that used to be just an, an overgrown area of weeds. Uh, we've also done a few rooftop gardens. Those have been great for our, our city schools. Um, and the other thing is we have done some work with hydroponics and indoor grow towers. A little bit, not a lot. Uh, we're dabbling, but we've we've gotten creative. Is the answer? <laughs> got it, got it. Well, this is, I think, the 75th anniversary of a tree grows in Brooklyn, so it's good time, uh, a good a time as any. Would you are would you argue that in urban school it might even be more important for them to be involved in this work because the students may not be as immersed in uh, nature as as more uh, maybe some more suburban school would be. Definitely, with a caveat of. Even, even our suburban schools, the kids are not necessarily, we don't, we haven't built into our routines enough to really participate in and embrace nature. So I would say, 
you know, intuitively you'd think that they'd be different, but practically they end up being about the same. Right. The daily activities of the students are still pretty structured and they don't often have uh, gardening on them necessarily. Exactly. Or, or forest bathing time. <laughs> we've also, we've also um, been using just uh, other spaces that aren't gardens to learn about nature, like local parks and taking groups on hikes um, for places that don't have gardens with other groups outside of our schools. Um, so how do you measure the impact of the work that of the work you're doing? How do, how do you know that kids are really walking away with a deeper appreciation and all the kind of benefits we want them to have? Phenomenal question. We tried exit tickets in the garden, um, but for the fall, for example, there we had uh, 1,428 students over the course of like 520 something classes. Mm -hmm. So physical exit tickets was really not going to work. And uh, just logistically, and also the, the paper there, we're trying not to use too much paper. I assume that students are so excited when they know that you're coming to, to visit, when they get to go to the garden. I have to imagine the anticipation is palpable and there's real excitement. Do you have any feedback about that kind of, like, I, I have to assume that. Um, Yosef just had an experience yesterday where uh, he learned from a parent that he didn't even realize how, how much the students loved when he came. He, you know, parents sometimes will, will let us know feedback from that they hear at home, which is really exciting. Um, but our, I would say that our, our most excited students at school end up coming to our camp also. And that's how we can, you know, really find the most excited students. But in general, yes, the students come out really excited. They're often, um, the whole group is running, which is an interesting space for us because we have to, you know, edit their mindset a little bit. This is not recess but that it's also not the classroom and it's somewhere in between because we're learning, but we're also, you know, learning through play and nature and touching and not the standard type of class. And, um, and we'll do, we do feedback forums with, from the teachers to hear from the teacher's perspective, what the experience is like from them. And that can be very informative for us and helps us really fine tune our lessons and make sure that uh, it's age appropriate and that we're, we're meeting the students where they're at um, and that we're really giving them something unique and impactful. Um, right. So that's been really helpful also. All right, last last couple of questions because we only have a couple of minutes left and this has been awesome. Um, if a school stays with you for a number of years, let's say, you know, you're introduced and you're working with a number of grades, but you know, uh, what, what, what grade do you culminate with? Do you work with all levels like early childhood all the way through high school seniors or is it mostly uh, elementary? Like early childhood all the way through high school seniors and we've done a few senior programs and aside from our school programs, some college Amazing. All right. So let's say I'm a school and I want to work with you and my seniors, okay, they're going to get you for a year and that's great. We, you know, but, uh, but they're going to graduate after that. But if I'm a student who's in the twos, or let's say a two-year-old and I'm going to be with you until senior year of high school, theoretically, what does the arc look like of a Grow Torah experience if I have all of that time with you? That's an amazing question. So um, the, there's two answers. Number one is as a nonprofit startup, we are totally tweaking that as we grow. We haven't needed that yet, so we're adapting it. Um, but in broad strokes, early childhood is focused on experiential nature play, social and emotional learning, um, and really practicing all the things that they're learning in the classroom, kind of amplifying that more so in the garden and building up a positive relationship with nature. Um, early elementary is kind of taking that one level further um, and helping them to start to think about their agency and their responsibility. 
and towards upper elementary and middle school is where we really go deeper into empowerment and agency. What can they do? And especially for middle schoolers, as they're coming of age with their bar and bat mitzvah, what does it look like to be of bar or bat mitzvah? And, and what does that mean with their relationship with the environment? And especially with their energy level in middle school, trying to make sure that their programs are tailored more towards them um, kind of taking ownership of the garden programs or of the compost programs. And then in high school, it's completely student run. It's an elective club. So at Maya Note, for example, the students are created and are managing a composting initiative for the entire school. They're weighing the compost and then they're gonna be proposing something to the town for the town to implement composting. So we try to really take them through that arc of appreciation to commitment and responsibility. That sounds, that sounds really, really great. Um, I really, I can't thank you enough for being here. And also, I, you know, just on a side note, I'm almost three quarters of the way through uh, The Power Broker. I don't know if you guys know this book uh, about Robert Moses. He designed basically all of New York's parkways and parks. And uh, just speaking and reading about the importance of parks and the importance of nature. Uh, there was a study that came out a couple of years ago in Britain that said uh, that just taking a walk in a nature-filled environment can decrease depression by 71%. Uh, all these studies that um, speak to the fact that when we get people, and in particular when we can get young people into nature, not just, you know, lishma, but also to understand the relationship that we have with nature, um, it's not only good for their emotional well-being, but it's good for their foundation as learners as well. And so I really thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Um, and uh, we look forward very much to continue to hear about the great work that you're going to continue to do. Um, before we go, any great lessons that you've had recently in a school that we could leave with that's really uh, particularly inspiring? Um, we, had a, we had about 22 Tubishvat events. Uh, 21 of them were virtual over the course of the week of Tubishvat. Um, and so one of those things was, uh, was planting microgreens, little baby, uh, you know, two to three week old plants. Um, and so that was just a, a really cool way of kind of combining all the things of nature play, nature appreciation. We, we made the, um, the, the planters out of recycled or upcycled materials. And then um, what's fun is we like to call that nature's organic fast food because you plant the seeds and in two to three weeks it grows and you have this delicious, super healthy, nutrient-packed food. Right. Um, and so it's just one of those ways of, of bringing it home and making it more accessible. Um, and connecting with the beauty of Tubishvat, the Rosh Hashanah, you know, the New Year for Trees is really special. Yeah, because I mean, Tubishvat, usually in a school is, you know, we'll, we look at some pictures of trees and, you know, and uh, we learn about trees, but the, but having this relationship so, uh, so important, uh, really incredible. I want to thank Yosef and Sarah. Thank you so much for being with us here on uh, the Startup Day School. Um, and again, thank you for the work you're doing. And uh, we hope to have you back on again soon. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. All right. That was an amazing podcast. Thank you, Josh. For contact info and links from today's episode, check us out at prisma.org. Follow us on social media at prismacjds. Subscribe to this podcast wherever podcasts are found. And check out the Prisma Knowledge Center, our online place to find resources, templates, articles, reports, and research on all things day school for day school leaders. 